John 16. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. That's the text we're using for this morning, so nothing else to reread. I would ask you just to pray with me one more time, just briefly, and just on the hills, hearing these words proclaimed all over again. You said that you would send to us the spirit of truth, who would lead us into all truth. I ask the Lord for that kind of power to be unleashed in this space today, where you will send the spirit of truth, the one who reveals the depths of God and the depths of us, the one who makes your words come to life, the one who makes us come to life. We invite you, Spirit. Brood over us, speak to us, hover over us, make us new through the proclamation of your word, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, amen. amen. Good morning. It's Trinity Sunday, so happy Trinity Sunday. I love the Trinity, don't you? That sounds funny to say. I didn't mean to say that so preachers. I love the Trinity. How many of you here love the Trinity? I really do. Um, I wanted specifically today to talk about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and um, this phrase in particular, which is really all I want to talk about, uh, captured my attention uh, really for the first time just a little bit before I moved to Tulsa, which has been right out a year ago. Um, I guess it was a few months before that, and I had developed a rhythm where almost every day I was going hiking at this, on this particular mountain that was close to my house, and um, I don't know really how to set all that up. I was... I think in many ways, the most disoriented I'd ever been, so unclear about what I thought God was saying and and doing, so unclear in those moments about who God was and who I felt like I was, I felt like everything was called into question. And I remembered this verse, but I'd never really thought about it, never preached about it, whatever. And I just woke up uh, early one morning feeling this need to go to the mountain, and I had that phrase just turning over in my head over and over again, spirit of truth, spirit of truth, spirit of truth. Because uh, I think I was, I had never been more aware at, um, of my own capacity for self-deception, at how bad I am at gauging the truth, at discerning the truth for myself. Um, this, not just about telling the truth to others. <laughs> my biggest problem is figuring out how to tell the truth to myself. I would tell you the truth if I knew what it was. You know, and I had this day where then in hiking that mountain over and over again, I would, I would just say those words, spirit of truth. And I remember specifically praying, spirit of truth, show me what is truest about me. Spirit of truth, show me what is true about you. Spirit of truth, show me what, show me what the truth is, whatever that truth is. Show me the truth that I'm supposed to see and that I'm supposed to know. And I, I just remember that day being one of the most powerful prayer experiences I'd had. Not that it solved everything, but somehow just 
coming awake to the idea of the Spirit as the one who is the Spirit of truth, so that when I cannot discern the truth for myself, and once again, who can? We are a mystery, most of all, to ourselves, I think, you know? And this, just, just praying. One thing in particular, I didn't know if I was going to mention this again today. I think I drove by this once a long time ago. But one thing that was strange about that day was I was walking up the mountain and I saw the biggest snake I've ever seen in my life. And I am terrified of snakes, like utterly terrified of snakes. And typically that would send me running in the opposite direction. But I'd already been praying the spirit of truth thing. And I felt like in that moment the invitation for me was not to look away from the snake, but to look a little bit closer. So wisely, I, um, I crept in on the snake a little bit. And as a person who would, man, I, I just, I, I used to like not be able to look at pictures of snakes in books. Do you know what I'm saying? Like science books, I would skip those pages because I was just so terrified of them. And I just remember leaning in and getting closer and just, and for about 10 minutes, just watching the snake. And I felt like somehow that the invitation of the Spirit in that moment was that the snake has a place on the mountain too. Don't not look at the snake because you don't like the snake. (laughs) Don't judge the snake. Let the snake be what the snake is. Let the snake do what the snake does on the mountain and you do what you do. But don't look away. Because I think for so much of my life, that's me. Kind of a fatal optimist. So if something's painful or hurtful or uncomfortable of the truth about myself or about the world I'm living in is hard to look at, then I just want to look in the other direction. And it felt like the invitation of the Spirit was to behold the snake without fear and understand that all of this has its, its place. I think one of the things that, um, that strikes me as being especially provocative about this right now is I feel like, at least in my life, and I'm always, I don't like to overstate things because I think I don't know, in the grand scheme of history, there have been many, many confusing, bewildering times. But I just don't know a time personally where it's ever felt like to me where the truth seems more negotiable, you know, especially, and I know I've ran about these things from time to time, in a day and culture in which everybody chooses their own news. I mean, there's not even like a handful of authority sources that everyone could say, well, they, well at least they'll tell you the truth. Nobody says anymore, well, if we'll just watch 60 Minutes... You know, every, everybody trusts 60 Minutes. There's nothing like that anymore. I think about Pilate's great question, which I think is one of the great questions that's ever been asked. What is truth? You know, it feels like so much of that is, is, in, is kind of in flux. And, and I think this is true culturally. I wanted to read something to you. I swore off years ago reading long quotes from books, for, from sermons, because I think it's poor communication. This is one of those days where I decided I don't care. Um, this is a book that I first read the year it came out in 2009. It had a profound impact on my life. And the further I get away from it, the more prophetic it feels. Even though it doesn't really speak from an explicitly Christian theological framework, I feel like it's so prophetic in the sense that prophecy is first and foremost truth-telling. And I think it gives us, I, I, th- I think it's very profound in terms of truth-telling. And especially this, this idea that we're living in a world where the, the lines between reality and illusion, the line between truth and illusion, is becoming increasingly unclear for all of us. The book by Chris Hedges is called Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy and the Rise of Spectacle. And if you'll look with me, and you'll be so glad, I know that I threw like paragraphs up here, because why not? Hedges writes, we are in a culture that has been denied or has passively given up the linguistic and intellectual tools to cope with complexity, to separate illusion from reality. We have traded the printed word for the gleaming image. And he uses in this, by the way, there's this running motif in the book where he, talk, he kind of actually talks about professional wrestling. 
as kind of a metaphor for culture right now. That really, <laughs> that what looks like news to us now is what was the WWF 30 years ago, or the NWA before that. And y'all know how I love the nature boy, Ric Flair. Because in order to be the man, you got to beat the man. Woo! Just comes out of me sometimes. But he describes this as a metaphor for culture and how we're in a time where we're so fixated on celebrities. And then the internet gives us such access to the lives of celebrities that we're endlessly captivated by minor details of the lives of famous people so that we're distracted from anything that's actually going on, <laughs> which I find to be very profound and, and very true, that this becomes sort of the thing that numbs us, that getting lost in peripheral details of the lives of people that don't matter that much becomes sort of all-consuming for us. So that even what, much of what passes for news, they're not really events. You know, they're, they're kind of self-generated. He calls them pseudo-events. And I use this phrase all the time. Uh, I'll be looking at the average news stories for a day, and I'll think, okay, 30% of that seems like actual news to me, and about 70% pseudo-news. Like, it's not really a story, but we're making it a story. Let me read just a little bit more. So, for example here, he says, International diplomacy, labor union negotiations, and convoluted bailout packages do not yield exciting personal narratives or stimulating images. A governor who patronizes call girls becomes a huge news story. A politician who proposes serious regulatory reform or advocates curbing wasteful spending is boring. Kings, queens, and emperors once used their court conspiracies to divert their subjects. Today, cinematic, political, and journalistic celebrities distract us with their personal foibles and scandals. They create our public mythology. Acting, politics, and sports have become, as they were in Nero's reign, interchangeable. In an age of images and entertainment, in an age of instant emotional gratification, we neither seek nor want honesty or reality. Here's the part I really want you to hear. Reality is complicated. Reality is boring. We are incapable or unwilling to handle its confusion. We ask to be indulged and comforted by cliches, stereotypes, and inspirational messages that tell us we can be whoever we seek to be, that we live in the greatest country on earth, that we are endowed with superior moral and physical qualities, and that our future will always be glorious and prosperous, either because of our own attributes or our national character, or because we are blessed by God. In this world, all that matters is the consistency of our belief systems. The ability to amplify lies, to repeat them, and have surrogates repeat them in endless loops of news cycles gives lies and mythical narratives the aura of uncontested truth. We become trapped in the linguistic prison of incessant repetition, we are fed words and phrases like war on terror or pro-life or change. And within these narrow parameters, complex thought, ambiguity, and self-criticism vanish. Blind faith in illusions is our culture's version of being born again. These illusions assure us that happiness and success is our birthright. They tell us that our catastrophic collapse is not permanent. They promise that pain and suffering can always be overcome by tapping into our hidden strengths. They encourage us to bow down before the cult of self, to confront these illusions, to puncture their mendacity by exposing the callousness and cruelty of the corporate state signals a loss of faith. It is to become an apostate. The culture of illusion, one of happy thoughts, manipulated emotions, and trust in the beneficence of power, means we sing along with the chorus or are instantly disappeared from view like the losers on a reality TV show. That's our little reading rainbow segment for the morning. <laughs> Call LeVar Burton. 
heavy stuff, I know, but I feel like that's so descriptive of the world that we live in. And one of the, one of the things that most struck me about this and that uh, quite honestly brutalized me to read at the time, because it's really, it's, it's, it's a painful read, but he talks at length in the book well about our culture, based on our cultural fixation with pornography. And I thought it was the most revealing thing about pornography I've ever read. I feel like so often within the church we approach those issues as sort of like, well, you know, God doesn't want anybody to be naughty or to have any kind of fun. And I feel like what I love so much about what Hedges does in terms of getting underneath the culture of all that, which there's a lot to this, but this idea that part of what is so scary about right now is that in a culture where everything and everybody is commodified, you know, like increasingly we're becoming people who just don't know the difference between fantasy, illusion, and reality. And, and, and so we become more caught up in fantasy to, to the neglect of real bodies around us. So then sexuality becomes this robotic thing that does it involve tenderness or breath or taste or touch. It's not even about humans anymore. We're literally becoming less human. We are being dehumanized, you know? All these things which, are, which I find to be incredibly profound. And I think especially in a time like this, it makes the truth so refreshing. When we hear the truth, there's something about it that's so, oh, it's, it's, it's jarring to hear the truth, but, but wonderful and kind of comforting too. Not the kind of truth-telling, because um, I don't want to empower these kind of personalities. If you were one of those persons who goes around with kind of this attitude of, I just, I just tell the truth. I just tell it like it is. I just say whatever's on my mind. I'm here to stage an intervention. Your friends sent me to tell you. They love you dearly, but none of them like you. Stop doing that right now. Just stop it. Just, just stop. Just stop right now. That is not what I mean. That not, not a truth-telling that has an attitude and an edge. Not a truth, not, 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 nothing like that. Especially as Christians, we believe that truth is always correlative to love. The truth is always spoken in love. So this isn't like having a chip on your shoulder. But just truth. Just reality. Just like real life. I'm so thankful for the people in my life who are just real life. Ben and Noel did such a beautiful job leading this morning. And really, um, since they've been back here, Ben's really become one of my closest friends. And for those of you who know Ben, how can I say that? What's the word I'm looking for? He's not the most appropriate human being I've ever met. <laughs> not incredibly appropriate. And for this reason, absolutely one of my favorites, you know, because it's not... There's not like an edge there. There's just this candor and honesty that's just very like, oh, you know, just, just humanness, just real life. I find it so fascinating how, and I think this is part of how God uses the truth. Whenever the truth is spoken in any context, whether or not it's in a church service, whether or not it's in an explicitly gospel te- context, the truth always sets people free. There's always something about the truth that liberates. There's always something about the truth that opens people up to God. Wherever you find truth, you will find the Spirit because the Spirit is the one that makes truth-telling possible. So, for example, I hear from friends all the time, some of you here who've been through Alcoholics Anonymous. Many people who've been to AA have had far more profound experiences of church there than they have in a place like this because there's something incredibly spiritual about sitting in a room full of people and admitting that you're an alcoholic, admitting that you're a sinner, and then talking openly about your mistakes. There's something spiritual about that. It changes the temperature in a room. You ever notice this? This happens all the time, right, in our lives, that when you're feeling uptight or anxious in some way, and you go into a room, and someone 
tells the truth. Someone is honest. Someone is vulnerable. Someone is real. All of a sudden, it just changes the atmosphere. There's something deeply spiritual about truth-telling. There's something about this that I think is, is so very much of, of God. But with that in mind, I really want to spend kind of the second half of the message just talking about one idea. Uh, because for as much as I think the truth in, in general is important, and as much as I believe it's, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that always illumines truth, I want to really delve a little further into this idea of, of being truthful with ourselves, because I really do think that's so often the hardest thing to do, you know, is, is, is telling the truth to ourselves, being open. Maybe I want to say it more like this, allowing the Spirit to reveal the real truth of us. I think so much about that verse in 1 John that says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That verse isn't talking about walking in moral purity. That verse is not talking about walking in sinlessness. The context in 1 John is actually talking about the importance of confessing our sins. So the idea is not that we're sinless, but that we're walking in light as exposure. We're walking in light as openness. We are walking in the truth. In fact, the text will go on to say that anyone who does not confess that they have sinned makes Jesus out to be a liar. And John is writing to a Christian community. We're called to be in community with people who help us to tell the truth in this way. When we walk in the light, when we are open about our flaws, when we're open about our weaknesses and struggles and sins, then we have authentic fellowship with one another. Interesting that that comes first. And better yet, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. This kind of openness and honesty and confession opens us up to God, but also opens us up to others. It restores communion with God and restores communion with each other when we walk in the truth. But again, this is kind of the million-dollar question, right? How do we know what the truth is? How do we know the truth about ourselves? One of my favorite verses that I come back to often in Psalm 51, and this is in David's prayer for penance, is where, and I just, just this phrase, you desire truth in the inward parts. I love that phrase, you desire truth in the inward parts. You desire truth in the core of me. You desire this soul-bare, bone-exposing kind of truth. You want the truth on the inside. That's become such a prayer of mine. I, I want to be true in the inward parts. I think there's something in, in each of us where there is this yearning that we desperately want our interior world, our interior life, and our exterior life to line up. We want that kind of consistency. We want to be able to live from our souls. It's, it's so, it can feel so challenging to do, and yet everything in us yearns for that. When there is a, a disconnect between who we are in here and who we are out there, then the, the people that really pay for this... It, are ourselves, right? It, we feel fractured. We feel fragmented. We don't know how to be in the world. We don't know how to be in our own skin. Only God can purify the inward parts. Only God can make us whole. Not whole as perfection, but whole as integrated. Our head and our heart and our body are all moving in the same direction. That's, that's what we really want. That's what God wants for us. So the prayer has to become that we're seeking the truth of God in our inward parts. That means that we do have to acknowledge the snake. That means we have to look at things, behold things that we otherwise would not wish to look at. It means we have to own up to things that are incredibly difficult. I remember years ago reading Scott Peck's book, he wrote a long time ago, I think it was 1981, called People of the Lie, where at that point Peck was a fairly new Christian, psychologist for years, but a new Christian. And part of the phenomenon he was wrestling with is that 
he had certain people from time to time that would come into his clinical practice who just seemed to be inexplicably evil, like they just hurt people for seemingly no good reason, like almost undiagnosable in this way. And the closest thing to a common thread he could find is that somewhere, because you know everybody tells lies at some point in their life, but what he found to be true about all of these individuals, the one thing he found to be consistently true, is that there was a point in their life when they were young when these individuals would come to believe a certain lie so that no longer were they consciously telling a lie anymore, they believed it for themselves. Like the lie was so embedded that they believed their own spin, they believed their own PR. And when you're that fully bought into a lie, it's essentially Peck's thesis, that's what opens you up for all kinds of evil because eventually you become the sort of person that can't distinguish between truth and illusion. This is why I think it becomes so terribly important that we just that we invite the truth of God into our inward parts. This, this feels like a big message to me, as a lot of them do, and sort of stormy in that way. One of the things, and I don't want to take a lot of time here, but I, I, I do feel like I need to say this this morning. The biggest regret of my life, really, was becoming very emotionally attached to the wrong person, the way that was extremely disruptive for me, what became this interior storm that I attempted to manage for years, trying to keep the rules, trying to still do what was right, but trying to manage all these things in my head and heart. And when I look back at that, one of the things that I, that I, that I always think at this point with a little bit of perspective is I really believe that so much of what was going on at that time was this simple. Whatever it is that we fear, we empower. And I was so scared to death of doing the wrong thing. I was so scared to death of being wrong that to, that to be confronted with this for me was death. I can't talk to anybody about this. I can't be open. I'm everybody else's confessor. Even my friends in ministry look to me in that way. As the person they can, who on earth could I talk to? And I really believe that whatever it is that we bury, whatever it is that we, that whatever we try not to look at, isn't that odd? I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to think about that. And it gets stronger and stronger and stronger, precisely because fear empowers that. When we learn to walk in the spirit, which is a way of saying learn to walk in the truth, all things are brought into the light of the presence of God where we can look at anything without fear. Perfect love cast out all fear. When we bring a thing, even an unpleasant thing, into the presence of our loving God who always cares for us, who always accepts us, anything is manageable. I, I read a, I don't mean to quote so many books today. I remember reading a great book about a man who was good friends with Fred Rogers, like Mr. Rogers. And he said one of the things that Mr. Rogers said to him all the time is that everything that's mentionable is manageable. How's that for tweetable, Mr. Rogers? <laughs> Everything that's mentionable is manageable. Like, isn't that true? Like, so long as the thing is like buried, it becomes powerful. So long as the thing, the thing is concealed, it rules over us. And the only way the monsters and the shadows can have authority over us is if we're so afraid of them that we can't look at them, that we can't bring them to the presence of God. I just think God must get so bored with us, right? Because all these things that we think are so exotic and so awful, oh, I'm the worst person ever because blah, blah, blah. And you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen this a couple billion times before. <laughs> sin is not creative. Human weakness is not creative. <laughs> we talk about original sin. There's actually nothing 
nothing more unoriginal than sin in many ways, right? God's not scandalized by stuff, but because we are so much so, because we're so afraid to look at a thing for what it is, name it for what it is, bring it in the light of God's presence, it develops all kind of power over us. Is this ringing true for anybody? I can tell if it's landing or it's one of those things, I just don't, I just don't need this to be true right now. I just don't want this to be true right now. Um, yeah, I think coming to terms with what's really in us in that way is so, just become so, so important. And one of the reasons I think we so need the Holy Spirit to do this is because, again, I'm, I'm learning all the more all the ways that I can't trust my own discernment in this way, which in one sense means I do need others. So quick plug for that. I, I believe very strongly in the discipline of confession. Uh, I'm not just talking here about priest or whatever. I believe in the priesthood of all believers. And James says to confess our sins one to another praying for each other, that you may be healed. There is a real connection between confession and healing, which is not a way of saying that if you're sick, that you've got sin in your life. Of course, that's not what I mean. But I do believe that when we have things in our life that are not confessed, they do have, they have a place in our bodies, they have a place in our souls. Do you hear what I'm saying? Rules over our sleep, it's powerful. And there's something powerful that's broken when we confess. So I do think the discipline of confession is so, so important. But just in this, this sense, too, of just constantly living awake and aware of God's presence. As we sung this morning, let us become more aware of your presence. Looking for the spirit of truth. Asking the spirit of truth to show us things that we otherwise would not look for or may not even want to know. I'm learning to really listen to my negative feelings. Because, my, again, my first response when I have a negative feeling about something is I, don't, is, you know, I don't receive it. I don't confess it. I'm a positive person, and I love Jesus, whatever. <laughs> but learning that oftentimes in a negative response or something, like there's something important in me that needs to be revealed. And learning even to have a weird kind of gratitude for that. Like I don't like what's coming up right now, but maybe this is something the Lord needed to bring up in me right now. So this can be dealt with. This is such a random example, but I mean, I, I like to think of myself as such a nice person. I mean, I have, I'm a nice person, y'all. I like small dogs and children and puppies, whatever, like uh, help old ladies cross. I think, I'm, I think I'm so nice. I just think I'm such a nice person. Until something, I mean, the other, I just moved into a condo this week, um, which has been great. Wanted to move downtown, simplify some things a little bit. That's really been good. So there's a parking garage there where basically like, you know, you can, residents can park there nights and weekends on a certain floor, but this one floor out of the many, the one that's closest, it's apparently reserved business parking during the day, like certain hours. So I'd parked there over the weekend. Monday morning, I didn't think to move the car, and I come down like a couple hours late, you know, just in my mind, only a couple hours, and someone had handwritten a note on my car that said reserved and had a boot put on the car. So, you know, you have to do the thing of, like, call the people to come and remove the boot, which, of course, I'm already unhappy about this. But then when the lady came to remove the boot, because I think, boy, they must really police this parking situation. She told me, that, I mean, it's not, they don't just do that generically in the building. The person who reserved that space during business hours apparently was just completely irate and called. And, you know, like, again, because I'm a nice person, I can't fathom this. I'm like, I was in this space a little bit late. You could leave me a note and ask me not to do it again. You don't have to call and, like, bring the boot. Not happy about it, but no big deal. Until the next day, when I happened to be riding past that floor, and I just happened, I'd almost forgotten about it. And then I just looked over to my right, and I saw a Porsche, or for you enthusiast, Porsche. For, I'm not going to say it that way. I saw a Porsche SUV in that space. 
And y'all, I can't even tell you what came over me in that moment. It wasn't just that it was a Porsche, it's that it was a Porsche SUV that made me hate this individual so much. I had a vision, I had a vision where I saw this man who checks in for the, uh, to the office for about an hour, then he goes off and he plays golf. After the golf game, he picks up, he has actual 2.5 kids, like there are two and a half of them. He's picking them up from the soccer game and their little polo shirts buttoned up to the top. They played soccer looking like that. And on his way, he's listening to soft rock 70s music and playing a little bit of air guitar because that Porsche SUV just makes him feel alive. That makes him feel like he's still got it. And I thought to myself, I should slash his tires. (laughs) And then I questioned whether or not that was of the Lord. So... So then I told myself, but you're a preacher and a Christian. To which I told myself, I don't care. (laughs) Then I told myself, there are video cameras here. I go to jail. To which I told myself, I have made an excellent point. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I was just kind of amazed. That, that, like, zero to 60, to go from, like, Clark Kent to, hmm, I'm ready to slash somebody's tires. And I really, I thought about this later today. It was very much just like, okay, Lord, what all is happening in me right now to be living in this place? What beyond this detestable human being is happening to make me this agitated, right? What does that mean? What do you want to illuminate? Because I want to be the sort of person that has truth in the inward part. So like if you crack me open, if I'm under stress, I'm under pressure, that what's gonna come out of me is beauty and love and goodness and blessing and not cursing, no matter how anybody else responds to me. So on the other end of this, where kind of in the midst of that kind of press, where a minor situation just about turns me into a felon, (laughs) makes me wanna cut somebody's tires, this week, much more seriously, we, we lost a, a great warrior in our church. Some of you know Stephen Sue Merrill. Uh, Steve has been fighting with, with cancer for several years, and uh, this week went home to be with the Lord. Sue's here this morning, actually, which I think is remarkable. And I just love this man so much. He's 65, um, such a sweet spirit, and somehow from the beginning when I first met them, just felt so connected to him and him to me. Just a beautiful, beautiful soul. And I had the, the honor uh, this week of, of just being with them a lot through these last through stages and watching how Steve in those last few days, the more and more his body was starting to shut down and the less coherent he was becoming. And, uh, you know, sort of half asleep, half in, half out, mumbling different things, gesturing sometimes, etc. And yet watching how even as his body and mind was shutting down, watching the goodness of the Lord that clearly is so deep in this man. I think it was about a day and a half before he died when I was sitting by the bedside with Sue. And before I left, we, just, we were going to pray together. So Sue asked Steve, is there anything you'd like Pastor Jonathan to help us pray about? And he said, they have a friend who I haven't met yet, I hope to, named Lila, who also has cancer. And the, diagnos- the diagnosis is really bad. And he said, we need to pray for Lila. 
She needs a miracle. And, and this, was the, this was the most lucid he'd been all day. He began to pray. I'll never forget this. Steve began to softly pray. Lord, I just ask that you would heal Lila right now. You know she needs a miracle. God, somehow she needs a miracle. Touch her body. Heal her. Somehow help her. Just poured out his heart for her. And then immediately goes into our Father, who art in heaven. How would be thy name? Begins to pray the Lord's Prayer. And I thought to myself, what kind of extraordinary soul that even in the last moments when everything else is shutting down, that what emerges, the truth that comes out, what comes from all of that press is concern for somebody else. A man who's about to die with cancer wanting to pray for somebody else who has cancer. Extraordinary. And it just cemented in me all the more just this sense of, Lord, this is the kind of truth that I want in my spirit. This is the kind of soul that I want to have. That's the kind of integrity that I want. I'm not that interested anymore in integrity as some kind of like superficial piety. Who cares about that? That's boring. I want the integrity that is, there is a solid substance. There is a reality to me. There is a substance to who I am with God and with others where everything is connected and everything is true. Do you hear what I'm saying? Like That's what I want. I want to be pure in the inward parts. I know I'm, uh, I'm probably trying to do too much in one message. I want to just take a moment to pray before we come to the table. And my sense is, you know, it's funny. I don't, um, I don't really get nervous about preaching per se in terms of crowds or whatever, but it's really weird sometimes how jangled my nerves get when there's a sense of something important the Holy Spirit wants to do in the room. And I'm really feeling that today. Like even in being funny or whatever, like I just, I just feel that so much that what God wants to do in some of you right now is just so significant and so, so important because I just think that we're just getting into some buried truths that need to be unearthed. And I just think somebody really needs to hear this morning, just how safe it is for these things to be exposed in the presence of God. And, and, and we need discernment to know what to do with that from here, from this space. But I think just even to have a couple moments where together we're intentional about inviting the Holy Spirit into our depths, allowing these things to be exposed, allowing these things to be revealed, is just, is just so significant. Just feeling such a sense of urgency about that. Would you pray with me? I would ask you just in this moment to, as best as you can, to... Um, Get lost just a little bit in God's presence. Forget about the people around you. Forget about the aesthetics of the place. And I want you this morning to feel just how much he loves you. To feel just, just how desperately your father has been looking for a moment like this where instead of running from truths that are hard to see, instead of trying to push things down, instead of suppressing things, you just allow everything lovingly to be exposed in his presence. Nothing to be afraid of, certainly not of the one who loves you most and who knows you best. So God, rather than attempting to deny any truths about ourselves. We come to you in all of our brokenness. We come to you, Lord, cocktail that we are of 
love and kindness and gentleness, violence, anger, rage, lust, pride, unforgiveness. Bring all of these things into your presence. We ask, Spirit, that you would purify us in the inward parts. We ask, Lord, that you would set us free from all of our delusions and that you would allow us to become the sort of people who walk in the truth and who walk in the Spirit. Teach us, Lord, not to be afraid of the love that probes us. Teach us not to be afraid of the Spirit that searches us. Knowing, God, that you never expose anything for any reason except to bring healing and wholeness. I ask even in these moments, in this moment now, Lord, that you would just send your healing presence. And that all that that has been pushed down and all that that's being just barely held at bay, Lord, as we just come apart now in your presence and in your love, Lord, we just ask you to hold us. We ask you to make us whole. We ask you to teach us, Lord, how to walk in honesty with ourselves and with others and with you. Teach us how to walk in the Spirit in this way. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.